0: Hi, welcome
1: to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders in their organizations, identifying the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author of an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member at universities in the US and Germany. I am delighted that today we have Dr. Wiley Shoba as a guest. Dr. Shoba, also known as CHIP, MBA, SCD, MBA, served as the Chief of Surgical Oncology at Massachusetts General Hospital, Chief of Surgery at Penn State, and then Vice President of Health Affairs and Dean of Medicine, first at The Ohio State University and most recently at Dartmouth. He now spends most of his time studying, writing about, and teaching leadership. So the goal of this show is to provide Provide valuable information to leaders and emerging leaders that will help them lead their organizations in our dynamic times. The most highly effective leaders lead the journey better. So, in a recent conversation, really the summary is in tough times or in transformational times, dynamic times, the highest probability of success in our world is good leadership. It is the biggest leverage point for success, and bad leaders produce bad outcomes. So my commitment is to bring the smartest leadership minds from across the range to provide you as the listener with information that will help you innovate how you lead. And it's my belief that we innovate on a daily basis and weekly basis rather than renovating ourselves as leaders like we would renovate our houses. So if I'm renovating my garage, I do that in a big bang. If I'm renovating how I lead, I am most effective by developing leadership practices and continuing to update how I think and how I behave on a regular basis. So with that in mind, what I'm hoping from today's show, uh, from the conversation with Chip, as the dean of multiple medical schools... You see the practice and education of physicians from a longer-term view than many others who aren't required to take this as their primary focus. We'd like listeners to walk away with a clearer understanding of the role leadership plays in the practice and administration of medicine. What can you as a physician do to prepare for the changes coming in the practice of medicine to become a more effective physician and leader of your practice and and if you are leading in in a university setting as well. So, Chip, thank you. I am so delighted that you're here. During the intro, I talked about your career path, and you've said that you are especially interested in the idea of leading yourself. That's an unusual path and an unusual statement. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you, and uh, good day to our, to our listeners. You know, I think that uh, what I've discovered I'm, is that I'm a teacher at heart. And this notion of leading yourself is something that I think applies to everyone, whether you're a formal leader or not. I I would say at the end of the day, leadership is an activity that happens out in the world amongst people. But the foundational underpinning of that leadership, for me, has to begin in here uh, with my own values, my own Conviction and a fair amount of uh, what I call the inward journey uh, mm-hmm. of of leadership, and uh, the reason that uh, this uh, notion of leading yourself is so important to me is because my my experience is that uh, leaders who are pretty grounded and pretty solid in here are the ones who are most effective out here mm-hmm. in, in the world. So. Uh, you know, what does it mean to lead in here or to lead yourself? It's, it's really a, um, a process that involves a willingness to do a fair amount of um, self-discovery, self-introspection. Ask yourself, what baggage do I carry around that might be getting in my way mm-hmm. of being an effective leader and being willing to, to take that on? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't discover too many people who are willing to do that. And um, another way of saying that is most people that I work with, and I think this is a fair statement, uh, would say that the primary determinant of their effectiveness of, as a leader is their knowledge. We would say knowledge is definitely important. We don't hear too many people saying that the fundamental underpinning of their effectiveness as a leader is their, is their way of being
1: knowledge is a price of entry. Yes. It's not it, it's required but not
2: sufficient. Exactly.
1: You know, it's interesting I I recently completed a an MBA class and the graduates as they were I asked why they take the class and often it's just, you know, it's a Monday night and it's easy for their schedule or whatever. They want to be leadership people. When they left, what they think they're learning when they come in when people who think about leadership often think as you said about the the tasks and it ends up being the journey of self-discovery which is invaluable and to your point for many people these are questions they've never asked and yet they walk out as significantly more effective because they know who they are rather than they know how to read a spreadsheet better yeah yeah which is also required but it's not what you and i do
2: yeah no i like what you said there uh, one way to take a cut at it is, is there are two questions that we often pose to the people we work with. They sound like the same question. They're very different. The first question is, what is a leader? And If, if you ask that question, we've asked it thousands of times. The basic answer you get, if you synthesize everybody's response, is something like, well, uh, leadership is about a person in charge who wields clout, allocates resources, and has answers.
1: Versus inspiring followership,
2: yeah. setting a vision. Exactly the the, the complementary question to what is a leader is, what does it mean to be to be a leader? Mm-hmm. And if you ask people that question, you get a very different answer. What you'll hear, what does it mean to be a leader? Well, to be a leader is to be committed, to be visionary, to be authentic, to be in integrity, to be self-aware. The reason that's an important exercise to get people to do is if you then ask them which of those two questions is more primal or more fundamental, what is a leader or what does it mean to be a leader, people will get fairly quickly if they think about it that what, is it, what does it mean to be a leader is at the foundation mm-hmm. of all of this. Yet we don't teach people what it means to be yeah. a leader.
1: Across the board and and because your field is medicine, you probably see it there a lot.
2: Yeah. I think in particularly in medicine, you know, as a physician, dealing with a patient, you know, what does it mean to be a physician? What does it mean to be a leader? Invariably, you know, what's gonna come up is you will be more effective if you're being caring, Mm -hmm. if if you're being warm, if you're being present. And to be perfectly honest with you, that's what patients want more than anything else. Mm-hmm. They want to know that their doctor is being there for them.
1: And that looks different than I'm a brilliant surgeon.
2: Absolutely. Not that being a brilliant surgeon or a great diagnostician or a fabulous researcher isn't important. Mm-hmm. But you've got to build the foundation first mm-hmm. is the way we come at it.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. So you've been saying for several years that we need to change the way we think about leadership in healthcare. and healthcare, uh, care. And you gave a talk called uh, Flipping the Leadership Paradigm. So that our conversation is a great lead into Flipping the Leadership Paradigm. Yeah.
2: The flip, again, picking up on what we just talked about, the flip is, I mean, the, the title is an offshoot of the Flipping the Classroom, which is a big deal mm-hmm. in higher mm-hmm. education now. But again, the traditional prevailing paradigm is that if you want to be a great leader, you just need to know more. You, you need to read another book, get another job, take another course, get more experience. Mm-hmm. And we think those things are important. And they um, are. And they are. They are. That knowing is the driver of exercising leadership. The way w- the flipping of the paradigm says, that doesn't quite get it right the more functional paradigm that we call the emerging paradigm is one that puts being a leader at the foundation and intimately connected to being a leader is exercising leadership, You know, the doing part of it. And if you start with what it means to be a leader, we talked about some of those things, being committed, being authentic, being in integrity, being self-aware, sometimes being courageous. That's... We think a better foundation, people then say, well, where does the knowledge come in? Because it's critical. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. what we say is the knowledge, in a sense, illuminates or informs whatever particular situation you're dealing with, you know, and we deal with every leadership situation is somewhat unique. And if Mm -hmm. you can draw on the books you've read and the experience you've had and your knowledge, that'll inform and illuminate the situation. Mm -hmm. So that's what we mean by flipping the paradigm.
1: And yet I want to probe this a little deeper. How is physicians, or or anyone really, I've gone to school, I've learned a lot, I've worked for years, in some cases decades, and I've learned my craft well, and I'm now in a leadership role, and I may have been there for a while, and I may even have a big title, how do I really do that inner stuff that I may never have either had an opportunity to do, I may not have known I needed to do. And often when I start working with people, they've gotten a phone or they've had a visit with someone and been invited to improve their leadership skills. And often they didn't recognize that they were deficient. How do we do that? How do we do it proactively so that fewer people who are working incredibly hard to do good work are surprised by the fact that they're not doing it as effectively yeah. as possible.
2: So I think you raise a critical and challenging question is, you know, how, how do you get people who just take physicians mm-hmm. who, quite frankly, have been good at everything they've done in their mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. and they're now in their game, maybe near the top of their game. They've got a big practice and, you know, doing good surgery. Mm-hmm. How, how do you get a, someone inside of those circumstances to take a step back and to say, you know, maybe I could be even more effective mm-hmm. if I took a look at myself
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, you know, are there certain barriers that I've erected or do I have mm-hmm. certain constraints that are getting in my way? Mm-hmm. It's difficult to get people who are doing quite well by conventional measures Mm -hmm. to take that step and you know I resisted it for you know for years it was always there as kind of a tug on the collar Mm -hmm. but you know that's I wish I had an easy answer on how to do that but we just discovered that many people seem to avoid Mm -hmm. it it's a path it's a journey that raises lots of questions and can be uncomfortable
1: Okay, so if you would, share a little bit about that journey for you. You were, you've had top roles across the country. You've been a surgeon. You've been a researcher. Where did that tug start for you,
2: and why did you listen? You know, that's uh, that's, that's a great question. What I think it's always been there. And one thing that contributed to its noticeability,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, as I assumed positions of greater span of control, mm-hmm. I always noticed, and I'm a little bit sad to say this, but in every institution that I've worked in, there are five different academic medical centers, I guess, there were people at the top of the organization
1: mm-hmm.
2: who, as best I could tell, were not exhibiting the kinds of behaviors that I thought world-class leaders should exhibit.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that included myself, Okay, you know. Okay. To, to some extent. And so, for example, one of the things that I would hear not infrequently was from people at the top of the organization was, it's all about the university or it's all about the medical center. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me and I think to a number of people that I talked to and dealt with that, no, it's really all about you. And one of the things that I do believe is critical to being an effective leader is the future that you're committed to Mm -hmm. has to be bigger than you are. If it's only about you, that's not going to give you the wherewithal to be as effective as you otherwise could be. And and at some point, your life is going to not work as -hmm. well as you, as Mm -hmm. perhaps it could. I discovered, and, and again, I think this was always there, but... One of the breakthroughs that I got was maybe, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago when I s- recognized that in some sense the future I was living into was r- pretty much about my CV, my resume. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the publications. It's all about this and, you know, how thick is your CV? Mm-hmm. And uh, what I discovered, it wasn't, a very palatable discovery was hey this isn't giving you the fulfillment mm-hmm. that you would like in life so those kinds of things i think for me you know prodded me along to get on this inward journey now mm-hmm. it's a journey with no top it's a it's a journey like a mountain with no top yeah there is no end game it's just sort of continuously Looking at yourself, being honest with yourself, and trying to be a person, it's almost like your consciousness evolves to a higher level.
1: I want to say this is not the great sales pitch. It's hard. It is hard. And to your point, it is, I would say, almost a second job. It, life would be easier if I just went home and drank more and went dancing every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that That isn't the path I chose. Yeah. For me, I feel much more complete and I bring a different level of performance to every client I work with, the payoff is huge.
2: Yeah. No, I think so. You know, the degree to which various clients and organizations that I work mm. with are open to this is variable. You can get in a little deeper when you do some one-on-one or small group work. But, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, the common denominator, as you know, is it's, this is all about being human. And there's something about being human that does resonate with people if you give them the space Mm -hmm. to open it up for themselves. You know, the only person you and I can change is ourselves, right? So Mm -hmm. your work is about providing people with insights that maybe open something up for them so that they'll, Mm -hmm. you know, take it on. But it is the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. There's no question about Mm -hmm. it. There are no clear answers, and like I said, it's a trek up a mountain with no top.
1: <laughs> Having climbed Kilimanjaro, that's how it felt. Yeah. <laughs> a mountain with no top. And it took a lot of physical stamina, probably more than I had as I got kind of drugged up by my collar almost by the mountain guide. And the inner development of leadership occasionally feels like being drug up by my collar. Every time I do one of these treks, I wonder why I didn't choose a vacation on a beach with drinks with little umbrellas in them. Yeah. And similar with the developmental work, leadership development work, it, I wonder why I took this on and I could be some variation of pina colada somewhere. Yeah,
2: no, I, absolutely. And Nietzsche said uh, some hundred years ago, he said this this digging into oneself is the most difficult and problematic journey that we make and the most rewarding yeah absolutely so on that note let's take a break
3: become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america
0: Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit
3: metcalf-associates.com.
0: are listening to innovative leaders driving thriving organizations to reach maureen metcalf or her guests today please call in to 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com now back to this week's program
1: Welcome back to Innovative Leaders, Driving Thriving Organizations. You are with Maureen Metcalf and Chip Shoba, and we're talking about leadership, specifically focusing on Chip's experience in medicine, academic medicine, and academics. And one of the reasons I invited Chip is I think he is one of the leading researchers in the space of leadership. And while his focus is medicine and academics, I believe that what he writes about is foundational for every leader on the planet, almost. He works around the globe and has these principles hold true irrespective of culture. Now, we certainly apply them slightly differently Mm -hmm. in the Middle East than we do in Europe, than we do in the U.S., but foundationally they hold true. So, Chip, you wrote an article several years ago called The Language of Leadership, In this paper, you said that language is by far the leader's most important asset. Would you say more about that, please?
2: Yes. Uh, So if you you check it out for yourself, one of the things we encourage people to do is to don't take for granted or believe anything I say. Mm -hmm. Discover it for yourself. But if you, as a human being, if you check it out in your own life, what you'll discover is that the world you and I live in, the human world, is a world that lives inside of language. You know, mm-hmm. it's, as, as you look around at anything man-made or in nature and you see it, it it's, it's virtually impossible to see it and not assign a, a label to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's a cloud, that's a car, that's a chair, this is a radio station, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And that, that begins at an extremely... Uh, young age, as we as we learn language, and and this is true whether you speak English or Arabic or Chinese or mm-hmm. Spanish, uh, right? So that's part of it. The second part of the language stuff, and I, I use I'll use the physician the physician's world as an example. Is you know, physicians learn, and it takes probably about eight to ten years to master it. But we learn a beginning in medical school. We learn a new language, the language <laughs> of medicine. And the thing about mastering a particular language, whether it's medicine or molecular biology or law or plumbing, mm-hmm. is that there's a, a set of words that go into that language. And in order to function in that knowledge domain, you have to master the language. Mm-hmm. So physicians have different access to a patient than someone who's not a physician does by mm-hmm. virtue of that, mm-hmm. of that language. So that gives people that are versed in that particular language kind of a unique handle. You know, I always say, take Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the advantages he had is he mastered both the language of mathematics and physics. And the overlap of those two mm-hmm. conversations probably helped give him an access that the rest of us don't have.
1: Mm-hmm. And so in the language of leadership, what insights what do you have a couple of key insights to share
2: with our listeners? Sure. I mean, we we say there's a prevailing language of leadership okay. that is necessary but not sufficient. Okay. It uses words like vision and strategy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. differentiation and you know, competition and those those mm-hmm. sorts of things, you know, and, and it's necessary. But if you get back to this sort of language of leading yourself, there's kind of a new emerging language mm-hmm. that several people are kind of thinking about. And it gets into things like, uh, and n- none of this is, it's all English or mm-hmm. translatable into whatever language you speak, So, one of the concepts that we try to get people to discover is that part of being human is that we live in a world of two types of listening. So, you and I are having a conversation right now. We're listening to one another, but there's also a voice that seems to show up in our head. We don't know where it is. Mm -hmm. That is sort of a background conversation. So, Every human being we've ever worked with has this sort of inner critic, this mm-hmm. oh, running yeah. commentary <laughs> oh, yeah. that's just there. And if you start paying attention to it, what you are discover is that um, when you're having a conversation with another person, you're having that conversation. But then you're having this conversation with yourself about that conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible for me to pay 100% attention Mm -hmm. to what you're saying if I'm also talking to myself about what you're saying and particularly whether what you're saying is right or wrong or Mm -hmm. do I agree with it. So a hallmark of great leaders, we think, are, are people that are aware that they've got this self-talk mm-hmm. that has a critical judgmental nature to it mm-hmm. and great leaders are aware of it we don't think you can get rid of it mm-hmm. but you th- we think you can get aware of it and in getting aware of it its handcuffs tend to relax mm-hmm. a little bit interestingly
1: one of our interviews was gary weber and he talked about how brains operate and it, this is my simplistic view of it but things like when something bad happens our brain will overemphasize that by a factor of 8 to 10 times so if i had a conversation with a man in a striped shirt which you're wearing and something bad happened after the conversation i would be on edge because of the shirt you're wearing, and we all, ha- and I point to that because it seems ridiculous, but we all have things that have triggered us and put us into hyper alert mode, and just by virtue of being aware of it, I can then pay attention. If I had had an interaction with someone in a striped shirt that was amazing, that eight to ten times factor doesn't kick in this is all about how the brain keeps us alive mm-hmm. so for our listeners that idea that i'm aware of my self-talk and and my physiology and what triggers me as profound or as ridiculous as it may seem it's the awareness that allows me to manage yeah.
2: it yeah the self-talk particularly the inner critic it, it, you know has a survival mm-hmm. element to it I mean, you know, when when our predecessors were evolving hundreds of thousands of years ago, I believe Homo sapiens has been around for two hundred thousand years. It was clearly, and this is before people spoke like you and mm-hmm. me, yeah. right? But it, but whatever whatever was going on mm-hmm. up here in in their head, it was a, to someone's advantage to say, I. I better be careful about crossing that swamp. There might be something dangerous in there, Mm -hmm. right? Or I better be careful about eating these berries. They Mm -hmm. might be poisonous, Mm -hmm. right? So the inner critic is there as kind of a survival mechanism. We always tell Mm -hmm. our clients, look, the brain is not wired for reality. It's (laughs) wired for survival. That's
1: a brilliant comment, though, because we forget that it is wired for survival and that has kept us alive as, a, exactly. as an individual and a species. Yeah. But unless I recognize that, I'm making assumptions about how I operate and how others operate. Exactly.
2: Now, you take that, you know, that 100,000 years ago, that self-talk. I don't know what, what it was like because people didn't have language back mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. But something like, I got to look out for myself. Or this mm-hmm. thing's going to eat me. Mm-hmm. You fast forward a hundred thousand years to today, and you got a leader that has that kind of self-talk. I got to look out for myself. I can't share power. I got to get all the credit and all the glory. You can see how that mm-hmm. gets in your way of being an, an effective leader. It,
1: absolutely. And to build on that, if I see the people around me as a threat, so the very employees that I'm supposed to be leading and motivating and nurturing. I often can see them as, as a risk to my survival. Absolutely, yeah. And so back to then to tie that into being aware as a leader of the conversation that's really going on inside of me. And yet for me, the more I paid attention, the uglier that got.
2: Yeah. No. We think that there is the one of this, the sort of universal mm-hmm. across cultures and mm-hmm. the, um, most common inner critic... Mm -hmm. phrase, if you will, is is something like, I'm not good enough the way I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We see it in every culture, everybody we, and now, you know, you could sort of see how that might have some sort of survival advantage a hundred years ago. I'm not good enough, you know, jumping across this canyon so I better not do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not good enough to take on that mountain lion, so I'm going to run. The Darwin Awards yes. are for
1: <laughs> yes. are in But in today's
2: well. world, particularly if you're mm-hmm. trying to lead an organization, and this gets back to one of the observations that, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I've, I've worked with enough people at the highest level who seem to have some sort of, I'm not good enough, so I got to Get all the credit for this, or I gotta, you know, mm-hmm. get have all the control. This is why we say being committed to something bigger than you are, uh, at the end of the day, is the only thing that's going to carry the day. And I had a boss years ago who said most leaders want their people to do well, mm-hmm. but they don't want them to do quite as well as they've done. And uh, I would say you always want your people to blow your socks off, you know, go go all the way.
1: Well, and and most of the people I've worked with would say that, and they believe it. But again, that's when the self-talk kicks in, and they can't quite do it.
2: So that's part of this leading yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Part of the emerging conversation of leadership. You know, we talked about the prevailing conversation, vision, strategy, differentiation. Part of the emerging language is being clear that we all talk to ourselves we've got this inner critic mm-hmm. that can be brutal so that's part of what we talk about you know the other piece of that that is important for people to get is that because we live in a world the you know human world is a world that's constructed in language mm-hmm. not so for my dog i don't know how the world shows up for my dog but, because she doesn't speak, I can't ask her. Mm-hmm. But the human world shows up for us in language. So the way mm-hmm. it shows up for you is different than the way it shows up for me.
1: Well, and the, the conversation in my head that isn't visible to you is unique to me as well.
2: Right. The assumption is the way the world up shows up for me is the same. It shows up for you the same way. I right? realize so, that's the
1: assumption. You know,
2: so if I look at a particular leadership problem and it occurs for me this way, the tendency is to assume it occurs for everybody else that way. Not not the case. It occurs very differently for everybody. So, again, good leaders recognize that and they ask people. Yeah. I mean, I first, first day I started as dean at Dartmouth, uh, one of my direct reports brought me something mm-hmm. and said, you know, we, we need to deal with this. And, and I said... How does that show up for you? That's probably seemed like the strangest question. Yeah, it seemed like the strangest question. Now, after a few years, everybody was saying, how does it show up for you? Because <laughs> they get that it that it is no particular way. It just shows up for people.
1: As the in, way it, yeah. yeah. So I hear two things that I want to wrap up this segment. One, the self-talk for me. And I want to be clear because we talk about sometimes it's not so pretty in there. And yet the practice of leadership just means I manage it. I'm aware of it. I I talk back to it and help it shift because I'm redoing the neural pathways in my brain. I'm retraining it, and these are all things that are possible. And since I've been paying attention to it, it's certainly gotten friendlier in there than it was a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And then the point that what I see and what shows up for me is very different – than what shows up for other people and the only way that I can effectively lead is understand them as well as they are able to understand themselves and share with me Yep. and then we co-create.
2: Yep. Exactly and when people sense or feel that you're interested in how the world shows up for them
0: mm-hmm.
2: how do, you're you ask how it shows up for them they're much more likely to be okay with the decision you make even though it's not maybe what they wanted mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah that I get to participate and that you've acknowledged me as a deeper human being not just my point of view but really as a valuable yep. person yeah absolutely cool thank you so let's get a break we will be right back with Chip Shoba and Maureen Metcalf
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Metcalf and Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call in to one 472 5790 That's one 472 5790 Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. This is Maureen Metcalf and Chip Shuba. And we're talking about leadership overall, and then Chip's research in the space of medical practice, medical education, and university education. And so you've said that there seems to be a relationship between burnout and resilience and the future people envision. Can you say a little bit more about that?
2: Sure. You know, if you just check it out in your own life, what you'll discover is that, you know, human beings, we live into a future. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, you and I are living into a future that says we're both going to be alive next month. You know, we plan into the future. You know, we schedule vacations for next summer and and th- those kinds of things. And if you think about it, and this is work that was actually done by Heidegger a century ago, the primary temporal dimension for people, for human beings, is the mm-hmm. future. Most people think it's it's the present, you know. But it's the future that you're living into that really gives you your
1: mm-hmm.
2: be, way of being and acting in the present, your behavior in the present, right? So to link that to this notion of what's the relationship between resilience and burnout and as as you know, many of us in healthcare have a, a we're concerned about the fact that so many physicians today are burned out and Mm -hmm. You know, the data suggests that half of them would leave if they had a better alternative, and that's of great concern to me. And I think part of their stress and disengagement and burnout relates to the fact that the future that they're living into, particularly with regards to their job, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: is gloomy or even hopeless. Which is
1: an interesting statement because, again, many people project onto physicians that they have certainly long-term jobs, mm-hmm. and that these are, quote, good jobs. They are well-paid. They work inside. They're not building buildings. They're not in theoretically dangerous situations. And yet, physicians are having a very different experience than those outside of the walls looking yeah. at them.
2: Yeah. If you talk to physicians, and I think the younger ones are doing much better than okay. the, the older ones, is the the... The What's difficult for the older physicians, 50s and early 60s and the like, is, and this is a broad statement, it, there are many, many exceptions, is what they will tell you is my practice is not the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. I don't have the auto- autonomy I used to have. The regulators are all over me. Mm-hmm. I'm working harder to make less. I can't choose the way I practice. I've got some suit telling <laughs> me how to practice. Mm-hmm. And... Medicine will never be the same. Mm-hmm. The doctor patient relationship is in jeopardy. And, you know, that's a pretty gloomy future. Mm-hmm. And that future shapes the way they are right now in the moment. Mm-hmm. Contrast that with someone who says, boy, there's a lot of changes in healthcare. And all of these changes that are emphasizing Um, better cost control, higher quality, that's an opportunity for me to apply that to my practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it'll be a lot of change and I'm going to have to adapt, but we could create a future. We could have a healthcare system in 10 or 20 years that really does provide good care to everybody, is cost effective, and focuses on quality and safety. That's two different ways of looking at it, Mm -hmm. right? The latter way of looking at it will give that doctor a much more effective way of being and acting right now.
1: Okay, so you've painted two different kinds of physicians and two different kinds of futures. My assumption is part of that's age. I, I joined medicine 20 years ago or more versus I chose to join in this current context but underlying some of that is this personal journey, how I manage my thinking, if I'm aware of my thinking, and how I was educated. And you know, one of your passions is educating leaders in physician or in healthcare. Can you say more about what that looks like for our more experienced people and our younger people? And, and I, to be transparent, I'm working with some of our more senior folks as well um again often when they hit a bump in the road and they seek some development help and coaching and that invitation to rethink how we see the world can be a beautiful opportunity but often with um a lot of kicking and yeah it can re- be resistance. a beautiful
2: opportunity it it often shows up for them as a insurmountable hurdle mm-hmm, right so mm-hmm you know that i think part of it is that the older physicians their you know there is a way of practice that for years worked for them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. paper charts you know i determine how i'm going to practice mm-hmm. how i'm going to run my office reimbursement for the most part correlates with the service provided mm-hmm. and now you're asking me to use an electronic medical record Mm -hmm. And that slows me down, and I'm not that comfortable with computers. And now you're telling me what high quality is, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to have to change. I'm going to have to change the way I work. I'm going to have to change the way I collaborate. I'm going to have to change what quality means to me. And and that's that's a, a big hurdle for people. The younger docs, and again, I'm generalizing, they've only used an electronic medical record. Mm -hmm. So they don't know any other way. They've only been familiar with kind of Mm -hmm. the changes in the past five to 10 years. So they don't have a history to compare it to.
1: You know, one of the things that seems important is the underlying where I place value, how I see my identity. For some people, we're asking them to fundamentally change how they think about the thing they've dedicated their entire life to, the practice of medicine, and good looked like this, and now we're saying it looks like something different, that that means if I want to remain good, I have to change how I think about what I do, and the core layer is who I am.
2: Yeah, I mean, it. if, if you're going to, and I think you said it well, you know, if I'm going to change my behavior, I need to change my the way I think about it or the way it shows up for me mm-hmm. and important to recognize that any change in behavior does, you know, one that's permanent does involve a rewiring of the what's going up in your brain, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And those pathways in some people are so... Calcified? You know, yeah. Or ingrained. Yeah, yeah, ingrained? And as Hebb yeah. said, you know, neuro, Hebb said years ago, you know, neural networks that wire together, fire together. Yep. Uh-huh. And so it's really tough to to change that stuff. You know, I have had a hard time predicting who is going to be willing to take it on versus who's mm-hmm. not going to be willing mm-hmm. to take it on. And, you know, I wish I had a better way of, of knowing that, but I've seen people respond very differently to, to the same set of facts. I remember about 20 years ago when I was... I was visiting a cancer center. I was visiting Professor. You'll like this story, and I met with a young guy who was working on his grants and had mm-hmm. to get his mm-hmm. cancer grant submitted and i uh, it wasn't a scheduled appointment, but I noticed he was working frantically, and i said, boy, you must be you must be burning the candle at both ends and burning the midnight oil and he said, "Yeah, I hate this stuff, you know i'm working on a grant, and the only reason I'm doing it is because my chairman says we have to do it, and I know I'm not going to get funded because the NIH is so difficult now to get funding from, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, his a disappointing way that mm-hmm. it was showing mm-hmm. up for him. Mm-hmm. A couple hours later, I, I, I met with a young woman who was dealing with the same set of circumstances, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. writing a grant, burning the candle at both ends, 20 hours a day, and I said, it must be a lot of hard work. And, and what's it like to know that your chances of getting funded are low, like 8%, mm-hmm. 10%? And she said, I know it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. And I know my chances aren't great, but, I'm, but it's a labor of love because mm. I'm finding a cure for cancer. Wow. Two different ways of looking at it. That's the choice you get to make. How are you going to have mm. this stuff show up for you?
1: So on that note, and in a, we're in the last minute, you wrote the foreword for our inner Innovative Leadership Field book. And that book really it is written for physicians, sorry, for physician leaders. And that book really does give the tools for this inner journey. Can you say just a bit about what you would like physicians in a university setting to take away from that?
2: Yeah. So I, I, first of all, I, I uh, you know, would recommend taking a look at the book. You know, the the one entity you have direct access to is yourself, and the medical profession is a busy profession. People will tell you they're being asked to do more for less, but I I would uh, leave any physician who's interested w- in, with a couple of thoughts. Number one is this thing we call the inward journey, this, mm-hmm. this sort of taking on yourself mm-hmm. and learning mm-hmm. about yourself and, and doing it with... A great deal of compassion is something worth doing. And uh, uh, the second is that this notion that leadership is about a person at the top, we have to debunk that myth if we're going to get healthcare to the place where we all want it to be. Everybody needs to lead. Mm-hmm. You can lead without a title. You don't need formal authority to lead. Mm-hmm. And the janitor can lead. And then the third is that this thing called leadership has a lot to do with what comes out of your mouth mm-hmm. and what you say and the way you say it and the way we what we say collectively as human beings, that's going to create the future and so we need to pay attention to what we say and how we say it.
1: Thank you. Typically, I do a wrap up, but that was better than anything I could do. So the invitation is for leaders, irrespective of where you are in your career or the level of success to continue or start that inner journey. The workbook, again, Innovative Leadership Workbook for Physician Leaders, is one of many that lays out the path. It gives a case study from a colleague of Chip's, Cheryl File, Dr. Sherry File, and really illustrates what this journey can look like. And again, I'm sure there are many tools out there. I encourage you, if you are interested in learning about leading yourself and these inner conversations, and then the outer conversation, that you do engage in some sort of journey. And as Chip said, this it is... The way we look at leadership is changing. And for us to move the practice of medicine into this vision of the future where everyone has care, everyone has high-quality care, means that all of us have to change how we think and deliver our services. Mm -hmm. So... Thank you for joining Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm Maureen Metcalf. Please email with your thoughts and feedback, info at metcalf-associates.com, or on our Facebook page, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Thank you.
0: Thank you again for joining us this week.